Michael Kanan, who uh, has made a headline for missing six of his eight field goal attempts this year, is now back to just punting and kicking off. The former St. Morton Anderson is here for most field goals. Look out! Right through! A kick block by Steve Gleason! It is scooped and scored by Curtis DeLoach! Touchdown, New Orleans! are coming to you live from the podcast Quarantine Capital of the World. This is Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters Season 10, Episode 6. As we are rolling on, I want to thank Scotty Bowman and Aaron Perino from The Shield of Divine for joining us on the podcast last week. Pretty incredible response to those two guests, especially Scotty Bowman, you know, a Hockey Hall of Famer. Pretty sharp for an 86-year-old man. Gave me 50 minutes and really was an incredible honor to do that with Scotty. And I wanted to thank him at least one more time before we went any further. Great show for you today. A little bit different. After I get done running my lips here, we're going to take a break. And our first guest today is Adnan Verk. Adnan is a guy who I was really interested in talking to today for a few different reasons. First of all, He's a guy who's got many jobs. He works for the NHL Network, Major League Baseball Network, The Zone. He does podcasts. He's a guy who's very busy. And I thought it would be interesting to speak to someone who lives life at that pace and see how he's doing now that most or all of that has uh, went the way of the dodo bird due to the coronavirus. Also, one of his podcasts is all about movies. And he's a big movie guy, so you can bring him in, and we're not we're not handicapped by the fact that sports is is not here, uh, because we can talk movies with Adnan, and we do that, and it's very fun. He's going to be our first guest in a second. Also on the podcast today, a debut, a guy named Andy Green. He is a music writer for Rolling Stone magazine, who happens to have a book out about The Office, a television show. Uh, so we talked to Andy about his book, about The Office, and of course, since he is a, mu- a music writer, uh, I can't help but talk a little gigaton and a little Pearl Jam. Uh, for those wondering if today is the day for the song-by-song review of gigaton, I think I'm going to give it one more week, kind of just let the songs kind of sink in a little bit. Quickly, uh, two things. First of all, I want to acknowledge acknowledge someone who passed away uh, yesterday named Tom Dempsey. And uh, he passed away from the coronavirus. And he was a kicker for the New Orleans Saints uh, way back when, before uh, I was even an idea. And um, here's, the, here's a cool thing about Tom Dempsey, right? When I started to become a Saints fan in 1987... They had been in the league for 20 years, and there wasn't many highlights. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't much. But one thing they did have was their kicker held the record for the longest field goal in NFL history, a 63-yard field goal by a guy named Tom Dempsey. And as a young kid, I held on to that 
record. I loved that record. I love to brag that the Saints had a kicker who kicked the longest kick in NFL history, and it was in overtime to win a game, and how cool is that? And I held on to that record, and when we went on a family vacation to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I was so pumped and proud uh, to go to the Tom Dempsey um, section and to uh, to see that to see that um, play out, and uh, just really cool. Rest in peace, Tom Dempsey. Uh, really sad. I think he was seventy three years old or something like that. Just really sad, but. I'll never forget being a kid, a fan of a team with not a lot to be proud of, but damn it, I had that field goal kicking record. Uh, Rest in peace, uh, Tom Dempsey. One other thing before we get going on today's podcast, next week uh, on the podcast is going to be an old podcast friend named Adam Lazarus. Uh, Now, Adam was originally on the podcast to promote his book, Best of Rivals, uh, which was a book about Steve Young and Joe Montana and no rivalry. We stayed close with Adam and he put another book out about the Redskins, came on uh, to talk about that. And he even co-hosted the podcast with me uh, back when I did co-hosts. And he also has a book called Super Bowl Monday, which is all about Super Bowl 25. And next week on the podcast, we are going to break down Super Bowl 25, uh, sort of the way we did with John Delapina. Uh, in regards to the 1994 Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, we're going to do the same thing with Adam and really break down Super Bowl 25. So that should be really fun, and that's on the podcast next week. All right, with all that said, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Adnan Verk. Uh, then we will do the book club update. Andy Green from Rolling Stones after that, and then we'll be back for plugs. And one last thing. All right, let's get it on. Our first guest today works for the Major League Baseball Network, the NHL Network, the Zone. He's got a podcast with Michael Lombardi called The GM Shuffle and another on movies called Cinephile. He's making a second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Adnan Verk. How are you doing today, Adnan? I'm doing great, Steve. I'm being inundated with these requests, which is clearly not an indication of my popularity, but that people are uh, scant material out there in terms of guests and things to talk about. So clearly, when you get a sports and movie geek <laughs> like me and there's no sports right now, people want to talk about movies. So good you to were... chat with you again. I hope you're holding up well. I thought of you because of the movie aspect. Yeah, I was like, you'll be a great guy to talk to. And I was doing another interview um, about uh, this guy, Andy Green, wrote a book about The Office. And I said, oh, it'd be a good TV movie kind of a thing. But I was thinking about you. I was like, this is a guy with many jobs. What is it like to go? I mean, you're a guy with many jobs, which means many commitments, which means your your Apple iPhone calendar, or whatever, is just clogged every day. What is it like to go from that to nothing? Well, thankfully, there's not nothing. So, but you're right; there is a lot. So MLB speaking, Network right. right now, I'm not doing anything. NHL Network, you're right; that's quiet. The Zone, that's quiet. 
and serious. That's quiet where I feel on the MLB Network radio. But God bless Cadence 13, one of my four employers. So I'm still cranking out podcasts, my Cinephile podcast, uh, which you can go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe. Very easy to do. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. You don't have to listen. Just please subscribe. And I'm still cranking out those once a week. And normally, Steve, you know, I only get to watch one or two movies a week. And we do Mount Rushmore on a topic of interest. You know, Jim Carrey's best movies I did last week because I finally saw Bruce Almighty 17 years later. <laughs> uh, we do like a Total Recall segment. You know, I look back at the Oscars from a particular year and try to recast them. So that's been fun to do. And I have more time to watch movies. And, of course, the big one that I'm doing that I'm thrilled, which is the GM Shuffle. That's an NFL podcast right. I do with the great Michael Lombardi, two-time Super Bowl champion. And uh, Mike's great. He's so funny and uh, obviously a long-time personnel guy. So we're really happy. The one thing, as you know, still happening is the draft. So we've been cranking out weekly podcasts, and we're going to do probably daily podcasts the week of the draft. So uh, those are the two things I'm doing. I'm doing a weekly cinephile still, and I'm doing a bunch of GM shuffles. But to your point, if I didn't have those, I don't know what I'd be doing. Obviously, I am busy because I have four kids. So homeschooling is a challenge, and obviously just keeping those guys busy. And uh, cabin fever is afflicting all of us, whether you're one-year-old like my youngest, or whether you're 11 years old like my eldest, or whether you're 41 like me. I think all of us wish we could just get out of the house. But you're absolutely right. A guy who's used to going, go, 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 now I'm just going a little bit. So it's, uh, it's definitely taking getting used to. Let me ask you a question about GM Shuffle and uh, yeah. Michael and you guys doing that. And I've listened. To, I've been listening to them. Uh, are, do you guys feel the NFL is guilty of being tone deaf here? Or do you think the NFL is sort of doing the right thing and maybe take the other approach of, hey, they're keeping people's mind off it every day. You know, when free agency started, that was like the best two or three days of all of this because so oh, much yeah. was happening. And it was like a great escape. <clears throat> so which side do you kind of fall on? I've heard both arguments in the last few days, especially with the draft kind of intensifying and plans for the draft. Um, the team's plans are kind of seeping out. The Saints are doing their war room and like the upstairs of a bar that the team owns or something. And that cracked criticism before they clarified it. But where do you stand, tone deaf or providing something for everyone? Or in between? I think it's providing an escape right now, Steve. I really do. Same. I think people are just jonesing for some entertainment, anything sports-related. God, please. Um, and so you're right. That free agency was a real boon. I mean, Mike and I cranked down like three GM shuffles that week. We were so happy. The Brady going to Tampa and obviously all the other moves. I mean, Philip Rivers going to Indianapolis and – you know, and not to say, obviously, trades are made. The Eagles get Darius Slay, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so uh, you're, right that the, yeah, you're right that those days were absolutely uh, a boon for anybody who covers the NFL. And certainly ESPN, sports owners, is wall-to-wall NFL conversation. But with regards to the draft, you know, I think what they're doing is keeping it going because really there's no reason not to. I mean, if one were to argue, well, you know, these guys haven't enough time to evaluate, I'd say, oh, come on. You had an entire college season for many of these players to evaluate. You had the combine. Um, and you've had lots of conversations with people around those players, whether it's coaches, whether it's parents, et cetera. So I think they've had enough to evaluate from. It's not ideal. I certainly understand that from a team's perspective. But the way they're, they're going to do it, obviously, is not the normal way. You're not going to have you know, thousands and thousands of people and people cheering and booing and Roger Goodell fist-bumping people. It's literally just going to be him announcing, here's the name, and, and now from there you go. Obviously, he's been does a good job always with, in terms of sales and um, selling the products. I'm sure they'll have... 
you know, Lewis Riddick and Shefty and all the rest of the guys can sure. their own opinions. They'll still be a good TV spectacle. But, Steve, I'm just telling you as a sports fan, I can't wait for it to happen because there'll be uh. something on the calendar that I would normally – and I'll be honest with you. As you know, baseball is my number one. It's my number two. It's my number three. Normally the draft is on. I'm still watching baseball. I'm normally doing change-up on the zone. But, I, you know, I have my phone on. I'm seeing who teams are drafting. I'm an Eagles fan, so I'm checking who Phillies drafting. This year I'm going to be more locked in than anybody because not only do I have the commitment with me and Michael – but I actually, there's nothing else to do. I'm like, dude, I'm going to be watching everything with regards to the draft. So in answer to your point, I think it would be tone deaf if this happened. If by July and August, there was still the level of hysteria and concern right now, then I think, then you're tone deaf. You're hanging out there. What are you doing? You guys can't have training camp right. where people are still dying at a very high accelerated levels. I think doing a draft and doing it in a much different fashion to me is acceptable. Yeah, I think I read that EA Sports is working with them on doing like a virtual uh, fist pump between the player and the. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. So what, be... what, what, I, what I always laugh at is how awkward it would be with the Goodell man hugs right. and the shugs and all that. So you're right. I hope we get a few awkward ones. Yeah, those along the, the virtual awkward hug. But I think you're right. <laughs> they're not hurting anyone, right? They're taking the appropriate measures that are in place. They're not flooding rooms or tra- making people travel across the country. And uh, you're mentioning the evaluation. Don't you think that sometimes. One thing that will sink a draft is almost too much information, too much second guessing. You know, maybe this time around, some teams aren't so flooded with information that it'll be easier for them to to to, to piece through and put the draft together. I don't know. Sometimes I think these teams are guilty of just too much information might sink them. So oh, I, to see I this completely year. agree. I mean, you can, you can always outthink yourself and think, yeah. "Well, we had the right guy, but now we think about this." I'm not going to do it. If I was a person in the NFL, what I've seen, I'm looking at college seasons and what happens. And if a guy got hurt for a primary amount of time, well, then I'm looking at the combine. And of course, I'm having conversations with his college coach, with his parents, with his handlers, with his agent, I mean, everybody. I mean, you, you've got to do your due diligence. It's too critical to draft every single pick. And we know the importance of it first rounders compared to second rounders and third rounders, et cetera. So I'm with you. Like, if, if this had happened in, like, you know, early February and it knocked up the combine, then I guess you could have an argument because let's suppose I was a senior college football player who only played one game my senior season, and then I got hurt, so I want to prove the combine I can still lift, I can still run. Like, I mean, then I could understand it a little more. But, I mean, we still had all that stuff. It's not like right. how much more could you have had. I, I, I'm with you. I think if I'm making a decision, you know, if I'm going to make a mistake, it's not going to be because of the fact I didn't have a couple more weeks to talk to these people. You can still talk to them. It's just not a matter of seeing them in person, of course. Right. Let me ask you a quick Eagles question. Um, sure. You, you, uh, what does Malcolm Jenkins have left? How was he last year? And would you be excited if you were me for his reunion in New Orleans with Sean Payton, who's often yeah. said the biggest mistake they've made is letting him walk out to begin with? Yeah, listen, I think that's a mistake by Philly to let him go. I still yeah. think he's got, if not plenty left in the tank, I think he's still got a good amount of mileage left in the tank. Like, it's, it becomes fashionable, Steve, to say, well, he's not the same player he once was. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously. Like, he's a veteran player playing like 10 years. Of course he isn't. But is he still a really good safety who's smart and a great leader and provides a lot of intangibles that you don't see? And by the way, I think he still has a tangible. They still think he can deliver a hard hit. I still think he's a decent cover guy. I still think he's good at coming up and, and, you know, block garden against the run. Like, he, he can do all those things, just not the same speed levels before. But I think intuitively he's so smart. And I do think the leadership is important. Like, the Eagles secondary, I mean, our corners were horrific last year. Right. And Jenkins was like the one rock in the secondary that was able to kind of keep the team afloat. So I like the reunion from New Orleans' perspective. And I think it's a mistake on Philly's part. They've done this before where 
it's very much a New England thing, right? Guy gets a little bit older, we're not going to pay him for the past. And I'm like, well, you know what? It's not about paying for the past, it's paying for continuity. So uh, I think he's still going to be successful for New Orleans if indeed we have football in September. Right. Let's uh, transition to the the movie side. So I played along with the Jim Carrey, Mount Rushmore. I think Truman Show is the first one you put up there. Um, Yeah. I put Ace Ventura next um, because it's still funny. And I I was listening to an old Howard Stern, and it was right around the time it came out. And he had read the script. He's like, it's the worst script ever. And he's like, and I watched this movie, (laughs) and this guy made it the funniest movie. So I love to give him credit for that. And then I have to have Dumb and Dumber. I know you left that one off. And then uh, what was my fourth one? Eternal Uh, Sunshine? No, Cable Guy, I think, was my fourth one. Cable Guy. Yeah. 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 It's funny. You know, when Cable Guy came out, I liked it a lot more than everybody else did. You know, it got dumped on by the critics. It got mixed reviews from fans. That was the first movie that he got $20 million for. It was almost as if there was a backlash. Like, hey, take that, Jim Carrey. You think you're all high and mighty. $20 million man falls flat at the box office. But I love what they were doing. I mean, Ben Stiller directed it. He was a really funny guy. He's a good director. It was very dark and dark, yep. twisted. And I, I mean, I loved his list that he was doing. I thought the, the sex game they were doing was hilarious. I mean, just there's a real creepiness to his performance. It was so different than Ace, you know, who's really obviously very broad, to say the least. But goofy and lighthearted and like cable guy, like no, this is like kind of a twisted guy. Right. Uh, like when he beats that guy up in the bathroom, it's like oh my god, I've never seen Jim Carrey in that kind of a role. So I do agree that cable guy is underrated. For me, uh, Truman Show, we completely agree on. I mean, listen, that's one of those movies that it predicted the future, right? That predicted right. reality TV. It's a, and he's so good because he's charming in it. But the first time you see him with that dramatic layer to him and a guy who's you know having his life ripped apart and how it's affecting him. I'm with you on Ace Ventura. I watched it again last year. Still holds up. That last year was the 20th anniversary, so I watched it again. I mean, it's still really funny. It's just so outlandish and so original. Uh, liar, Liar, I had on, because to me, that's like Jim Carrey channeling Jerry Lewis with the physical comedy. Sure. And, I mean, this is one of the, he, he did a lot of these, you know, high-concept comedies, meaning it's just one sentence, and then that's the movie. So, like, yes, man, he has to always say yes. You know, Bruce Almighty, he's God. Liar, Liar, you can't tell a lie. And I think the other two weren't particularly great. But this one, I think, it really does hit the mark because the sequence where he's, the first time where he came alive, it's just so inspired. I mean, the depths to which Jim Carrey will go to get a laugh is about as much as anybody. Maybe Robin Williams as well in terms of like that kind of manic, zany behavior. Um, and I go to Turtle Sunshine, which I think is his best dramatic performance, you know, about a guy, Joel, who wishes he could remove Kate Winslet from his brain. It's tender and it's sweet. It's romantic. It's unlike Jim Carrey we've seen before. You know, I wish he'd gotten an Oscar nomination at some point. That would have been the one for me. Um, but he obviously he's had a great career. And, and like I said, the reason I mentioned is I'd never seen Bruce on my, I just one of those movies. I was like, yeah, and now I have the time to do it. My brother told me he thought it was one of his best. And when I saw it, I thought, man, I was all right. Definitely one of his best. So that's what kind of led us to the whole Mount Rushmore idea. I, I'm with you. Most people, I think had your foursome. I, and the one that I didn't have, which many people did, of course, is dumb and dumber. That right. appeared to be the one that's probably the most in dispute. Yeah. For me, I mean, that came out like on my winter break, like my sophomore junior year of high school. And I, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard at a theater with my butt. You know, it was just the perfect timing and, you know, came out at the right year for me to love it. The hard cuts for me were Eternal Sunshine and um, me, myself, and Irene. I think I debated between those two and Cable I'm, Guy for the last spot. I'm glad you mentioned me, myself, and Irene because I saw that for the last time, for the first time, excuse me, a year ago because I remember that came out and got mixed reviews, so I never ended up seeing it. I thought it was great. I'm completely with you. That, that almost made my list. I said, this is hilarious. Yeah, it's really When he funny. splits in those different personalities, I mean, it's, it was one of those, it was a Fairly Brothers movie, and people said, wow, it wasn't as good as there's something about Mary. 
as so often happens, people judge it against what previously came out rather than just judging it on its own merit, right? Oh, it's Jim Carrey, but it's not as funny as Ace sure. It's Fairly Brothers, but it's not as good as, you know, Kingpin. Well, no, but it still is really funny in its own right. And he's got genuine chemistry with Renee Zellweger. Of course, they were together for a while. Good supporting cast. I mean, Anthony Anderson, who now is on Blackish, he's one of the three sons oh, of Jim so Carrey Robertson. Oh, those guys are great. Still, the movie. I mean, the, yeah, the so late funny. Robert Forster's in the movie. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot to like about me, myself, and Irene. Dumb and Dumber, I probably should watch again because I just I saw it once and I liked it, but I mean, I didn't love it as much as everybody else. But maybe I'm missing something because uh, it clearly is held up. I mean, I, obviously, I know that. Tell me there's a chance, you know, of course, Jeff Daniels in the bathroom. Those right. are about as good as it gets. The line I always go back to that I love from Liar Liar, you're filming that on there, was when he's, he's uh, getting hauled out of the airport. And he's like, great news. Both my legs are broken, so they can't take me directly to jail. Oh, and you wonder how much he had lives. Like the end <laughs> credits are great. Right. There's one scene there was Susie Curtsy opposing war. They start yelling. He calls her a Jezebel, and she says overactor. Yeah. They all start bursting in laughter, and mm-hmm. it shows he can take a joke too. I think she points at the director. I think she said he told me to do it. Jim goes, Yeah, sure, <laughs> you did. Sure, you did. They're on to me. Like he's, I just think he's such a likable guy. When I had SL Price on this show, I'm like, all right, I got a nine-time best American sports rating guy on here. It's like, I got to get some yep. book recommendations for this lockdown. So now I got a movie guy on. He does a movie podcast, a man with the knowledge of the movies. You got to give me four or five movies that people who are locked down have to watch. Well, if you haven't ever seen Goodfellas before, you should rectify that problem. Yes, that's one of the, the greats of all time. Yeah. And so the great it's probably the movie that I've most rewatched over that time. So you're right. I know people right now have nothing to do, so they're probably thinking, well, I haven't seen Goodfellas in a while. Trust me, you should watch it a whole bit. If you've never seen it, rectify that. Uh, obviously, it came out in 1990, so it's been 30 years since that classic came out. So nice round number anniversary for all of you. You know, in terms of comedy, I think all of us could use a laugh right now. That's why I mentioned the Carrie movies. I love The Naked Gun. I think Slapstick is so great in that movie. Um, <clears throat> I love Plain Strings and Automobiles, a great John Candy movie. That's on my Mount Rushmore. The great comedies, at least. I think Fist Call Wanda is really good. I think Rushmore with Bill Murray's a really special movie from Wes Anderson. So there's a Mount Rushmore comedies for you. And in terms of like classic dramas, like I, you know, I went back, <clears throat> I watched Richard Pryor, a couple of movies I'd never seen. One's called Blue Collar, a rare dramatic performance from Richard Pryor. He's great. Him and Harvey Keitel, Yafikado, playing three guys working in Detroit, working in a factory, and being frustrated by their union. Really good dramatic film from Paul Schrader. And also a comedy he did with Gene Wilder called Silver Streak. I'd never seen it in 1976. came out 44 years ago. It's a little bit dated. It doesn't hold up as much as some other comedies do, but it did make me appreciate what a good comedic actor Gene Wilder is. So I've been going back to some of those 70s movies, enjoying those. I know people love binge-watching shows, so if there's one for the spouse you need, my wife and I watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, mm. which I love because of the, the production design and the music and the 1950s style, and the dialogue is a real homage to Preston Sturge's comedies and Howard Hawks and that rat-a-tat-tat spitfire dialogue. It's really fun to watch. It's perfect, I think, for, for a with a couple, and it's, you know, eight episodes apiece. It's on Amazon. <clears throat> you can fire through those. Rachel Brosnan's the lead actress. Uh, she's really good. I love Tony Shalhoub. He's won the, an Emmy for his performance as well, playing her dad. And, of course, the greatest show of all time, which is The Sopranos. I just had a buddy of mine watch it for the first time. He binge like, what's wrong with it? How could you? His last name's Spinelli, and he lives in Jersey. What's wrong with it? How did <laughs> the hell could you not watch The Sopranos? Um, but he loved it. He said, oh, I didn't care the ending. I said, oh, God, we can discuss the ending another time. It's still a great, great show. But if you've never seen The Sopranos, there's no excuses now. 86 episodes, let's do it. Yeah, it's perfection. I, I'm so jealous of someone when they're telling me they're starting it, like just knowing what they have ahead of them. 
Uh, That's a great point. Yeah. I felt that way. Um, I felt that when I watched it again, because I, I, for the 20th anniversary, which was last year, my wife had never seen it, so I watched it again. And it's, it's funny you said that, because I was jealous of her not knowing. Like, my favorite episode is long-term parking, mm-hmm. when Adriana gets whacked, mm-hmm. and I said, God, I wish I, wish I could feel her emotion right now, having no idea what's about to happen. Because it's such a powerful episode that still held up all these years later, which is amazing to think about. I got, I'm thinking about rewatching Breaking Bad, because that obviously was a great, great show that I've never... I, I watched it its entirety, obviously, and loved it, but I haven't gone back. I like to wait a good amount of time, but maybe I should go back and watch Breaking Bad again, because I remember having the same feelings watching that one, and what the hell was going to happen to Walter White. Yeah, I'm rewatching Deadwood right now, going through that again. Oh, really that's a great it. one. Uh, mm. You know, that's a great guy. That's a good show, Steve. Yeah. I mean, Ian McShane is Al Swearingen. Oh, it's one of those great, character. great characters. There's, there's a handful people always mention of that era, and it's always Tony Soprano. It's Walter White, and it's Don Draper, John Hamm's character, Mad Men. But I think Swearingen's right there with those guys as far as a great anti-hero. I mean, the way he chews up dialogue. I mean, David Milch's writing on that show, amazing. Especially... Swearing like running a whorehouse. I mean, he's just so funny. I mean, the, the way he chews up that dialogue. I mean, that's a great show. Good call. You mentioned uh, uh, Marvelous Maisel or whatever. It's interesting you bring that up because I saw Price brought that up too and asked me if I had watched it because he was wondering if I didn't like her. Um, he said that he finds uh, her so unlikable, but that he thinks he it kind of makes the show in a way. Um, and he said that was kind of the consensus in his house, just that the lead character is sort of unlikable, but not in a way where you want to turn it off, but in a way where he he still likes the show. I don't know. It's an interesting perspective. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think she's funny. First and foremost, as a comedian, she's good. And I think the character is interesting. But to that point about likability, you know, it's interesting. My wife said, especially on this passage, she was, gosh, she's such a brat. The way she's complaining about her parents is so spoiled and stuff. So I do get SL's point. I mean, my wife definitely is on that train of, liking her but being aggravated by her right. and of course there's lots of great shows where the lead character can be irksome but I, I could see that she's not like just sweet ingenue she's a woman who was you know mistreated by her husband now comedian but definitely selfish and narcissistic which as we all know comedians from the 50s or comedians today are often like and then i got a you said you were watching 70s comedies this is actually from 86 but the guys who starred it were probably more famous in the 70s it's burt lancaster and kirk douglas in a movie called tough guys um, and it's, oh, yeah. it's really I've never funny. Seen it. it's Tell a, me about it. It's yeah. just it's about they're they're in jail for thirty years, and then they get out of jail and they're old and they're trying to like get back into the game, but they're old and they've been out of the game for thirty years, you know. Um, right. And it's just really funny, and they're great together. Obviously, one of the great kind of duos. And Kirk Douglas just recently passed away, so if you're looking for something random to watch with him, um, it's 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 no, very, I, very funny. No, I like that pick, because you're right about Kirk Douglas. I always like to go back whenever these guys pass right. away. Some of their best work. And he's, I mean, he's in some great movies. Obviously, Spartacus everyone knows about back in the 60s. But, yeah, his filmography isn't, like, as varied as Michael Douglas' son. So, tough guys. All right, I'll have that to the list. Yeah, and then the comedy I love that nobody else seemed to like, especially at the time, was Dana Carvey's Opportunity Knocks. Um, <laughs> nobody <laughs> I've ne- nobody I've liked never it, but it, but I, I love I, it. I picture the cover right now. I know yeah, with him up, holding the champagne bottle. That's yeah, sh- yeah, yeah, I've never seen it. I have no interest in seeing it. Tell me, why is that funny? Oh, well, he's just really funny in it, and I think that some of the shtick that was maybe um, a little tiresome at the time, mm-hmm. there's so much distance to it that there isn't that fatigue for him and for his sort of way. So 
there's a little bit if you watch it now there's like a little bit of freshness to it that at the time I think that maybe he was just wearing on people like overexposure type of thing that doesn't exist obviously now but the movie's really funny yeah. he's a con man in Chicago and um, the big thing they say uh, falling in love in a in a in a love con what is this amateur hour and that's kind of what it's about um, he falls in love with the daughter of the guy he's conning they break into a him and his partner break into a house and find out that the guy is is out for a while and so they stay at the house and they become the guy that's supposed to be watching it it's really it actually is really funny. Um, no, I, I think you're right about how some of these guys get overexposed, and years later you watch it again. Because now, like, I find there's nostalgia for it, right? It's like, hey, whatever happened to Dan Carvey? You know, you miss seeing some of those actors, especially from SNL. From that era. I mean, obviously, I miss the late Phil Hartman so much. I wish he'd done more than he had done. He was just so funny and so talented. I'm going to screw up his last name, but uh, Tom Hanks is boss and big. Robert Loggia? Robert Loggia. Loggia? Okay, Loggia. Yeah. makes sense. He's in it, in Opportunity Knox, and he's really good in it. Oh, I mean, Lowe's is one of those guys. He's great in The Sopranos. He only has a couple. He always went up to Oh, I know. Honor. What a scene when Christopher, Christopher oh. shows up on the porch. He's got the sucker in his mouth. And <laughs> he tra- tricks him into, uh, you know, keeping the TVs. And what, what Tony says, oh, did I learn anything from uh, uh, from who's Janice's boyfriend? What's his name? Oh, I'm from uh, no, Jackie. April, yeah, Richard. Is it Richard? Yeah, yeah, Richie April. Yeah. yeah, did I learn anything from Richie April? I'm taking this guy down. I'm not even not even messing with oh, him. Oh, and, and that slow motion shot of Tony telling a joke, and then no one's laughing. He's just yeah. staring at him. That look of malevolence on his face. And shortly after, he's on the bus back to prison. Yeah, dive him out. And that, that was, was set great. up. That was set up beautifully by Carmela, kind of getting in Tony's face and yeah. saying. Oh, these guys only laugh at your jokes because they have to, and then he sees him not right. laughing and knows he kind of doesn't I know. have them. Yeah. All right. A totally. um, couple more minutes, and I'll let you go. Uh, we covered movies. We covered sports. Baseball. You're a baseball guy. Let's get a few minutes mm-hmm. of baseball in. This is painful, right? Opening day didn't happen. We're waiting for baseball to start. 1995 is the season I always think of. 94 got canceled out, but 95 didn't start on time, right? Uh, the Braves yeah. uh, the Braves win the World Series that year. Greg Maddox has the sickest season, and that season is ridiculous. He's like 19-3. and three. I'll bring up his stats while you're, while you're talking. I'll share it with you. But I think of that season, a shortened baseball season, and what it could be. Let's just throw July-August as a possibility. What, what do you think this season mm-hmm. is going to look like, like, what do you think they're thinking right now in terms of what their season can or will look like? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, so I'm going to hope we get some games. And to your point, what helps baseball in this case is that it is a long season, and we've got a lot of time ahead of us. And in 95, it was a 144-game season. They made it work. I think that the good news is the players, and led by Tony Clark and the union, and Rob Manfred, of course, the commissioner, are on the same page. The fact that they've already hammered out a deal in terms of what service time is going to look like, the fact right. that players are guaranteed that even if there isn't a season, that Mookie Betts would be a free agent, um, and the fact that you know they're open to everything. I mean, I read Tony Clark yesterday saying the whole idea of no fans. Are we open to it? Absolutely. Like we just want to play some baseball. So my guess on it, Steve, is that they're going to play. I think it's going to be mid July. I think right around the All Star break, and I think they're going to get eighty to one hundred games in, and I think it's going to be no fans at least to start. To start. I know uh, the president. Yeah, I know the president had a conference call telling. The commissioners by August, September will be okay. I mean, uh, color me blind if I'm going to believe that. But 
I think to start, you go no fans. Now, Tom Verducci has said, the great baseball writer, 35% of revenues from concessions in the gate. So, of course, that would go away. But to my point, you get 65% still there rather than zero. And you'll take anything you can because the TV numbers will be robust. And sure. All the people who complain about baseball, people are dying for it. They're dying for any sport. So, you know, if basketball and hockey don't come back, and I'm skeptical on both of those, well, I think if baseball shows up in middle of July, and, and, and they're already open to the playoffs in November. So I think mid-July, August, September, October, three-and-a-half-month regular season, possibly no fans the whole way, definitely no fans to begin. And I think you can do 80 to 100 games. Double I think you can do the playoffs. And, yeah, double headers, yeah. absolutely. Seven inning double headers. If that's what you got to do, you go for it. Do whatever you're going to do. And I think the playoffs, you can hopefully get it in November. You try to expand it, although I'll be honest with you, I'm not Dr. Fauci, but I worry about the second wave of the pandemic coming. So sure. I don't know how late you want to go. I, I know this idea of, oh, go to November and Scott Boris is like, oh, you can finish it on Christmas and do it indoors in Miami. And I'm like, no, 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 man. If that second wave comes, you're in trouble again. So I think you're racing against the clock at that point. The peak we all know is going to be in a couple of weeks, at least here in the New York area where I live. I'm in North Jersey. So that's my best guess. Mid-July. Three and a half months, it'll be a sprint, not a marathon. And you know what? might not be the worst thing for baseball. Like People are going to be so happy to get games in. If it's 80 games, every game will feel more important because right. it's half the usual. So I hope so. I know you're thinking a little later than this, but how yeah. unbelievably American it would be if baseball could return on jo- July 4th. You know, like, how <laughs> you know? unreal would that be? He said that a friend of mine was saying the same thing. He said, God, it's got to be July 4th. He goes, are you kidding? Because he was saying with the fans, I said, I don't think you're going to be able to get fans, buddy, by July 4th. But he was saying, imagine like Wrigley Field, you right. know, July 4th, Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park. I mean, people just go berserk. Yeah, baseball's back. You know, it's mm. 90 degrees. It's a nice summer day. But I think that's a little bit far-fetched, at least in terms of the fans being there. But, I God, I'm praying that we get some semblance of a season. And, and I'm confident just because they seem so eager to make it happen, all sides. And... I mean, at least, again, what we've seen with the pandemic in Japan or Italy, wherever else, like, at some point, it has to level off, right? It's not going to keep rising and rising the whole way through. Right. The worst case scenario, of course, would be the peak hits in the New York area in a couple of weeks, and then it just keeps you traveling, right? Chicago's peak is May, right. and then all of a sudden, you know, Denver's is in June, I and mean, then you're in real trouble. All of a sudden, you go, hang on a second, how are we supposed to travel if we can't go anywhere? But I think, again, these guys are creative. Right? Tell me they're not thinking of this stuff every single day of their lives, right? I'm sure right now they're thinking, hey, could we play in five parks? Like, could we find five places indoors and do all the games in Miami, Toronto, you know, Tampa, Arizona? Like, find so-called, you know, not hot spots and make it work? I mean, they are going to get creative in trying to get these games in. All right, how about this for a season for a pitcher? Tell me if this is any good. Yeah. 19 yeah. wins, two losses, and again, was it 140 games, right, that year? Not 144, yeah. Right, yeah, so 19-2, and two, uh, 1.63 ERA. 10 complete games, uh, three shutouts, 209 innings pitched, um, wow. you know, in a shortened season, which is pretty incredible. How about a uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio? You tell me if this is any good. 181 strikeouts to 23 walks, three of them, <laughs> in, three of them intentional. Um, yeah, Nine-to-one ratio, pretty yeah, good. His ERA plus was 260. FIP 2.26, and his whip was .811. What a season. I was about to say, if you you get a sub-1 whip, I mean, you're always looking pretty good. Only that's like, you know, reliever-type territory. And the 9-to-1 strikeout to walk race is crazy. And you mentioned the innings, 209 innings, 
in this day and age, I mean, that's unheard of. Um, it's funny because I was, you know, MLB Network, one of my employers was doing a bunch of stuff in the 90s Braves the other day, and I was watching one of the sit-downs. Of course, I've worked with John Smoltz a bunch. He's great. And you look at Smoltz and Glavin's doing TV work with Atlanta, and then you see Maddox. I mean, he looks the least likely to be a pitcher, an athlete at all. Like, he's right. you know, heavier on the middle now. He's got the glasses, lost a little hair, and you get like if, if somebody's watching that and you're going, oh, Smoltz, that guy looks like an athlete. Goatee, yeah, ball, Glavin. Yeah, I can see, sure, crafty lefty, yeah. You're going to know the guy on the right, like Maddox, he's the best of them all. It's not even close. He's like one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Really? Oh, yeah, the guy won like four signs. He's ridiculous. It's, and he's a classic example of location and control. Like yeah. if, if, if you ask any pitcher, there's three things that make you work. Velocity, location, and control. Velocity is the least important of the three, which people can never seem to figure out. They always forget the best one that matters the least. Well, it's funny. Those three guys, you got Smoltz, who's like a scratch golfer. And he looks like he right. could be dominant in any sport. Then you got Glavin, yes. who was also an NHL draft pick, right? So he's a, right. a an athlete at an elite level in two different sports. Then you got Maddox, and it's like this was the one thing in professional sports he could be the best at. I think so. <laughs> I completely agree. You're right. Glavin with the Kings drafted the fourth round. And, yeah. uh, Smoltz, you're right. Great scratch golfer, and also apparently a great ping pong player. I asked him once, "What sport are you the best at?" You kind of give a little impish grin and said honestly ping pong I'm like really because i i could beat anybody so i we need to get a ping pong tournament at some point let's get that televised <laughs> and john smoltz be the ringleader when i uh had i when uh schmoltz came out with his book i was able to beg somebody to get him to come on this podcast and he, he told an unbelievable story about going to college for like four days and then he's like no i'm out i'm out of here <laughs> <laughs> i can see that yeah, he's, really he's got so much talent he doesn't need to be going to college no yeah he's like no i'm out, I'm out of here this is not gonna happen <laughs> all right why don't you plug the podcast let everyone know where they can get everything and then i'll let you go thanks buddy go to apple podcast go to cinephile c-i-n-e-p-h-i-l-e just hit the subscribe button rate and review movies that normally would say the new releases but of course there's nothing really new coming out as so we look back at some great movies of the past or at least the last couple of years great interviews we've had over the past patrick gallo was in the irishman i interviewed him a couple of weeks ago fun listen um and of course the gm shuffle me and michael lombardi mike is so funny he's interesting he blasts people he doesn't care but who he offends he always tells it like it is and we'll be uh, heading up into the draft in, in fine form so that's the gm shuffle apple podcast in addition to my work on MLB Network and NHL Network and Zone and Sirius, but as Steve pointed out, those things, I'm not doing anything right now. I'm waiting like the rest of us to get back here. So hopefully it comes sooner rather than later, and I appreciate the diversion, my friend. Do you have a uh, Mount Rushmore in mind that will be on an upcoming podcast? No, I'll take suggestions. I uh, normally just look at the movies I've watched that week, and then I just think about what I'm going to do. Like uh, I watched this movie, Deep Cover, from 1992. I loved it as a kid. And as so often happens when you watch it again, it isn't nearly as good. So it's, Loris Fisher's like an undercover drug uh, detective, a DEA, uh, played with Jeff Goldman, who plays a lawyer as well. So I was thinking of like a Mount Rushmore drug movies. There's been a lot of those over the years. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Hopefully I didn't keep you too long. I appreciate it, Steve. Okay. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank 
Adnan Virk for being on the podcast today. Always enjoy talking to Adnan. When he was on the first time, uh, we were doing this awesome interview, and I was rolling. And we were about 45 minutes in, and I looked over to my left to realize I was not recording the interview. And that was a nightmare. Uh, but Adnan nice, was nice enough to re-record with me that day. And uh, maybe to the surprise of many, nice enough to be back on for a second time. All right, quick book up club update today. Uh, the Back Roads to March, The Unsung, Unheralded, and Unknown Heroes of a College Basketball Season by John Feinstein. We kind of started the month with that book one last time. I figured I'd plug it today. Uh, Feinstein is one of the great writers. And again, the book is called The Back Roads to March. The unsung, unheralded, and unknown heroes of a college basketball season. Uh, also, we've been pushing a book by Keith Law called The Inside Game. Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Uh, I'm recording with Keith coming up here in a little bit. I want to say April 15th. I'm recording with Keith, and then we'll get it out soon after that. The book still doesn't come out. Uh, for a few weeks, but uh, you can pre-order it now. It's called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves uh, by Keith Law. Also, uh, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports by Yaron Weitzman. And uh, we're going to talk to Mr. Weitzman soon, hopefully, about this book. Uh, It's done well. We told you about his story. First time author puts the book out in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, So we're going to help him as much as we can. All right. In a second, we're going to bring on Andy Green. Andy has a book out. It's called The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s. Now, I kind of learned about the book too late to make it a part of the book club. So I just went to Andy directly, asked him if he would be on the podcast and then I got a copy of the ebook and read through about as much as I could uh, before it was time to have him on. But I figured we'll still kind of treat it like a book club book, and I'll plug it the next few weeks. But it's called The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s. It's an oral history style book, uh, and Andy will tell us in a minute why he chose to go that route with it. But I think you'll enjoy it, and in a second we're going to tell the story of it. So let's take a break. And we'll be right back with Andy Green. All right, our next guest today is a graduate at Kenyon University and writes about music for Rolling Stone. He's also the author of an awesome new book about The Office. And he's here to make his sportscaster's debut. A warm welcome to Andy Green. What's going on, Andy? How are you doing today? I'm doing great yourself. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, again, the book is um, The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s. So the easiest place to start is why The Office? Uh, you know, I think simply stated, it's just really funny. <laughs> <Right>. I, think, <laughs> I think there's so few shows these days that are that funny. And I just kept watching it and kept laughing and decided to, to do a book. You know what's a really unbelievable thing? Well, it's believable, but a really interesting thing about The Office, and you kind of touched on it in the book, 
and people maybe take it for granted now. But it really, really got its legs and really started to become popular when it was one of the few things you could get from Apple, right? How I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, it was either like on iTunes. It was one of the first shows you could download or rent. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember my brother was much younger than me, and he was, like, watching it on his first iPhone or something. And I remember just, like, a lot of steam really built up for the show through that, which seems so normal now because we watch so many shows under the different streaming services and all that. But that was really a network show that picked up a lot of steam early from the Internet. Yeah, it's a pretty key moment. This is season two. We're talking, like, 2006 here. This is before the iPhone, even when you would download shows, um, you know, when you download music off the off the iTunes store into your into your desktop. Right. And one of the first things they sold was as a TV show. It, it was The Office, which was the choice of Steve Jobs, and they pushed it hard in their advertisements, and that got them a sort of young audience that remained loyal. It was a it, it, it was a crucial move that NBC did. To spread the show. Yeah, it totally blew it up from what it was. And that was right around the point, too, where they kind of ran out of episodes to parody from the English version of the show, right? Because since season two, sometimes it was there like 15 episodes or so that they had to kind of go off of. And then that's when the show really started to branch out and become its own, too. Yeah, it's sort of overstated in lore. It's really just the pilot that's a remake of the British show. Okay. And that's almost shot for shot of time. But episode two, which is Diversity Day, they were doing their own thing. There were little moments that were inspired, and the characters obviously were. And I guess the bigger thing is Michael Scott in the first season, which is just six episodes, he was really doing a sort of David Brett impression. Uh, which was different, but they did their own thing, like on a, at a very, a very, a very early point. You, you know, I, I did a bad job because I kind of got ahead of myself, even. But we were talking about your idea of doing the office book, and I'm always interested to find out when authors decide to go with the oral history route. Was there a moment? Did you know right from the beginning you were setting out to do an or, yeah. oral history, or did you? Well, was, did you have what you had, and you're like, oh, this will work better that way, or? Well, what happened was, you know, I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. And this started as an oral history of just one episode of the dinner party episode. And so when I did that, I was still on a website. If you talk to a bunch of people about a very specific thing, uh, that a oral history is the best route because you can talk about the same moment and and hear and you can hear multiple voices about it and the stories differ a bit but also lock in fun ways and so I just think it's it's a, it's a fun way to tell stories and I did that on just one episode and it was a big success and I had fun with it so I decided to just keep going in that same format. It really seems to be a great way to tell the story of a TV show like. James Andrew Miller did it brilliantly with the Saturday Night Live. Um, yeah. The the Wire, All the Pieces Matter. I think that was by Jonathan Abrams. I hope I have that right. Uh, he did it mm-hmm. as well. You know, it seems to be like a good – maybe television and telling the story of television maybe just lends itself to the format. That Did you find that? Yeah, because a TV show is a product of so many people working together. Sure. You know, that there's a huge crew. So if you talk to all those people, 
they all witness the same stuff at the same time. So their memories are a bit different, but you can just layer in so many voices that it's a, it creates a very, a very vivid just version of history for people. Yeah, and the book itself is just about 100 different interviews, I think, that you reported on. Um, everyone yeah. from, you know, obviously the on-screen actors to cast members and writer or I second production staff, writers, producers, whatever. It's a great list, NBC executives. Um, so you're mm-hmm. really thorough. Was there anyone uh, that you wanted to get that you didn't? Or um, when you're dealing with all these different different stories and different pieces, is, is the biggest trick just trying to – is it almost like a puzzle? You kind of – I picture like when my grandma used to do a jigsaw puzzle and she had all of them like laid out on the counter and yeah. just trying to kind of put them back together. Yeah, I mean, the, there are a few challenges. The first challenge is to get as many interviews as, as you can. Right. I got almost 90. And then people I couldn't get, I took, I took quotes from elsewhere, which are all cited in the back of the book. So I had, you know, probably 120 different voices in the end. And the challenge then was to put it all together, which was really hard because I had hundreds of hours of raw transcript. And to take that and piece all the quotes so it could it would it would flow nicely was very labor intensive. Yeah, it sounds it sounds nuts, especially when you have that many. Let's talk about the interviews just for a quick second. Was there anyone sure. that you you sat down thinking, "Oh, I'm going to get, you know, I'll get something here," and then you're like, "Wow, this person is made for this." Like, where someone is just a maybe a surprise, just how much information they were able to contribute to the book. I mean, a few people. I'd say that the first name I think of is Brian Whittle, who was the boom mic operator. So he was one foot away from every take of every single scene for the entire run of the show. <laughs> Good perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So he has amazing stories, but he wasn't exactly a participant. So he was watching it all. And so he sort of saw everything at once. You know, he, he's just a perfect person to talk to. And he never had been interviewed before. So he was just an endless well of stories and information and just so much. Uh, but there's tons of people that are like that. I really like talking to race editors who, who watched all the takes of, of everything and had to sort of flow them together. So they had a very great take on it. Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I did so many interviews. I tried to attack it out of every possible angle. I figured that there's nobody who worked on the show. It was too minor a person for me to talk to. Yeah, I mean, the boom mic, that's a great pull. I, I mean, I don't know. I would yeah. have thought of that. That's a great pull. I forget who we were talking to about this, but did you kind of get the feeling that it's a great topic because the people you were going to, it's kind of the best thing they've done in their life? And I don't mean that in any way. Like, I don't mean it as a demeaning thing or anything like that. I mean it like they did this really awesome thing, this show, and it's so – did you find it easier to, to get out of them because you're like, hey, let's talk about this awesome thing you did? Maybe it's a lot easier yeah. than saying like, hey, let's talk about that time you had to go yeah. to your grandma's funeral def- or something. Sure. It's yeah. this thing they're very proud of, and it's something that they didn't always get the credit that they deserved for because the actors on the screen sure. are – amazing people but they didn't write those words all those jokes that we quote and everything all this the show we love so much is the product of the writers and they're mostly pretty anonymous 
So I think they were happy to get on the phone and sort of take their well-earned credit for the great work they did. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm just looking at the list here. You know, that you got, let's see, five different producers, you know, a huge list of production staff. So, again, just kind of making the point that it, it's a lot more than – and, of course, the the actors are a huge part of the book. But there is a great perspective in here from not just writers but also um, – I think I knew but had forgotten that um, – that uh, what's-his-name was also a writer um, – I got it in my notes here. Is that Paul? Is it Paul Lieberstein yeah, or, yeah. or BJ Novak? Yeah, BJ, both. I think I knew BJ and Paul was more. I didn't realize Paul was Toby. BJ, I think I knew, but yeah. I don't think I, I realized Paul. Is that unique? Yeah, and pardon? Is that pretty unique to the show, or is that generally the case? It's very unique yeah. to put writers on the show and to put writers in the show who had no prior acting experience. That Paul Lieberstein was a sitcom veteran. Uh, but he never really worked as an actor. And so to put them on the screen was kind of great. And all the actor writers worked in the annex part of the office. That's where Mindy Kaling's character of Kelly worked. That's where BJ's character Ryan worked and where Toby worked because they didn't have time to to sit on set the entire day and be in the background of other shots because they were writers. So they stuffed them in the annex so they could have time to work. I also thought it was really interesting that Creed's name is Creed's name. Yeah. You know, Creed Blaine Creed. Creed Bratton yeah. and like, Angela is Angela. You know, there's a bunch of them that use their own name. Creed is one of my – Creed is kind of like Paul on Cheers. You remember Paul? Uh-huh. Yeah, just like yeah, this guy who's on the show, but you, sometimes you forget he's on the show. But then when he's on, he's hilarious. You know, like him talking himself out of being fired by Michael is one of the – you know, classic yeah. moments of the show. Which is his big breakthrough moment. That was his first real scene where he got to talk and prove himself. Yeah, I'm a huge Creed fan. I've been his buddy for years and years and years, like prior to this book even. I think he's brilliant. What else What What else is Creed up to in his career? Uh, he puts out music and he tours. You know, he was a rock star back in the 60s. Oh. So he's a great songwriter. Right. See, this is the kind of stuff that's in this book. When you get into an oral, uh, an oral history, you know, history is just learning uh, beyond the scene. It, did you do they have DVDs with commentaries and things like that? Like when you do a book like this, what I'm asking is the research. Do you how, how do you balance the research versus the interviews and letting the story come to you from the interviews versus having something and then trying to get it out of them? Do you know what I'm saying? Like. It's, yeah, sure. Yeah, I I try not have a real preconceived notion of the story in my mind until I do the interviews. So I, of course, watch the DVDs with commentary tracks, which is kind of time consuming and like a lot of it is not useful. A lot of it is them talking to each other or you're getting to real minutia. You know, they'll be like that tuxedo that that I'm wearing there. It was so tight, so itchy. You know, it was like things that. I couldn't use it all. Uh, it was doing. It was. It was. It was doing lots of reading of old articles, but mainly it was the interviews I did. I would interview somebody, hear stories, then I'd ask the next person I talked to about the same story that I, I heard of the previous person, and they would build on it or tell it from a different angle. And when with each interview I did, with my total knowledge of the show just grew and grew and grew. And so some key people I get back on the phone two or even three times. It, 
after I had heard a lot more stories to sort of hear their take on those stories. Here's something I was uh, reading a little bit about today. There's in the book there. There's um, television shows start, and oftentimes they have no idea when it starts, how many seasons or how many episodes it's going to be. There's yeah. a, there's a few shows they start, they have a plan. We're going to do these four scenes. They map it out, or these four seasons. They map it out. That's rare though, and sometimes yeah. the show gets so popular that it goes longer than the plan and sometimes shows can back themselves into corners or whatever. Like I think cheers in the early days, you know, maybe Diane leaving was a blessing because they had sort of played out the on again, off again relationship between Sam and Diane. And I I bring it up because I wonder about the idea of Jim and Pam and Pam having another, you know, boyfriend or fiance even who worked there and how that played out. And as the show aged, did they feel like they backed themselves into a corner? I was I was reading about it a little bit, but tell me a little bit about what you think about the length of the show and that how how that affected the writing, and then in particular yeah. with Jim and Pam. Sure, I think that a sitcom is a strange type of way to tell a story because a story it generally has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a sitcom is just so much middle, and that's mm-hmm. tough out of a storytelling perspective that the job of a sitcom in many ways is to make as much money as it possibly can. So if it's successful, it goes year after year after year and they can make upwards of 26 a season. That's a lot of story. And so you're right that that is often no plan. The plan is to just get renewed for a new season and they'll figure it out then. And so a huge story in the office was Jim and Pam. And on most shows that have a couple at the center that aren't together, they stretch it out for the entire run of the show or they get together. Then they immediately break apart. It's like friends or something. It was Austin and Rachel that there's 10 seasons of friends and they didn't get together in a real way till the, till the, till the end of the finale. You know, they dated for a season or two, but then, then they broke up. Right. Uh, so Jim and Pam, you know, I think that the that seasons two and three are, are really the best amount of ways because they're yearning for each other and they're not together. And the minute they get together, it's kind of the death of that story because as a writer smartly said to me, if you want to be with somebody that you work with but you're not with them, so much of your dynamic and tension is at the office. That's, that's the only place you see them. So you have to have all of your longing and your time together and your flirting there but the minute you're dating, you have your whole story happens. It's outside of the office. And what people see in the office is you just being professional and not going there, really. Yeah. So um, I think once Jim and Pam got together, their characters ceased to really be compelling in a big way. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever watched wrestling, but it, it reminded me a lot. I was thinking about this when I was reading what the writers were saying. I remember that exact part, actually. I was just looking at it a little bit ago. Reminds mm-hmm. me a little bit about when you have, like, Randy Savage crushes Ricky Steamboat's throat, and then for the next year, they get to tell the story of him chasing Savage and trying to win the belt. But then finally, uh-huh. WrestleMania three happens, and he wins the belt, and it's like, well, now what? He's not chasing it anymore, and that was the appeal, yeah, that, you know, right? As a fan, you think you want the big thing to be resolved that you're waiting for it, and you're yearning for it, and you're dying to see it. But you don't realize that that you don't really want it, and you just want the pursuit of it. That once you that once a character 
achieves his goal, then what's the character? You know, sure. it's a very it's a, it's, it's a very hard thing to crack for a writer. Another thing I was really interested in, and it actually is a topic when um, we talk to authors all the time, the, the, the challenge of the excerpt, right? Like, what are you going to run if you have the opportunity to run an excerpt? And you picked, uh, for in Rolling Stone on the website, uh, you ran the part where there's a debate on whether or not Dwight or... Um, or, and, or Andy. Yeah, Andy should be the um, the boss when Michael leaves. And that's an interesting mm-hmm. part of the series because there's a lot of debates when, I'm sure, when Michael um, leaves. A lot of people are like, oh, is this the John Hine moment of the show? You know, is this when the series right. jumps the shark? Should it have just ended? And like you said, well, the show's yeah. about money. It's still making money, so they're not going to end it. So now, yeah. which guy is it going to be? What about this this pivotal point in the in the story for you? You know, I prefer The Office in its early glory days, but I find things often to be more interesting when they're failing than when they're working. It's sort of more fun to write about a train wreck or something sure. than a train ride that you know, which is, is going really, which is going really smoothly. So I'm, I, I was extremely interested in the latter seasons of The Office and why it didn't work, and examining the failure as much detail as I could, and key moment was the decision to make Andy the new boss and not Dwight because Andy was a really unfunny boss. The character, it just didn't work at right. all. And, and they all knew it. He was frustrating to watch even, you know, like it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. That was compelling about Andy when in his earlier incarnations was he smiles and everything, but he's masking so much rage <laughs> that he would punch through a wall in moments. He was sort of this, vibrating mass of resentment and anger that he hid in this really weird persona. And when they made him the boss, they sort of stripped all that down and made him just this blob of nothing. Um, And it was horrible. And so I was really interested in the debate about who to make the new boss, why they came to a bad decision and the consequences of it. Is that why you decided to use that as the part that you pulled out? And, and ran on Rolling Stone? just Yeah, I was looking for something that had never been anywhere else that showed, you know, that the book was was really a behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I, I picked it for those reasons. If you could... I know sometimes when you write a book, right, you have to consider, will people buy the book? Let's put that aside for a yeah. second. You got you got sure. your you did this one. It's doing great so far. I can tell. Seems like I, I got one more follow up on that. Why I think it's doing great. See what you think. But sure. if you could pick any other show and do this again, is there one or two that you'd love to do this for in the future? It's tough because so much has been done. I mean, I love sure. The Simpsons. Right. It's my favorite show, probably. But someone did that book, and it was great. Um, that I love Mystery Science Theater 3000, but it's a cult show, and I think there's a very small audience for it. I love Freaks and Geeks, but that was one done in a, in a... Yeah, yeah one season, yeah. there was an oral history in Vanity Fair, which was great, and a the documentary doc. yep. that was great. So, I, as a writer, my urge is always to write about something that has never been examined before. And that's hard, so the glory of... I, there's a, you know, I think the glory of The Office as a writer for me was that there was that there's no other book about it. So that was a real thrill. So it's really hard to think of a, of a follow-up 
that would be as fun for me. And it hasn't been done. Yeah, you know, I was thinking South Park maybe, but I don't know. That's such an epic story. There's so many seasons. It would be a nightmare for me. Right. Yeah, that would be a lot of interviews and a lot of ground to cover there for sure. Uh, yeah. The the book came out in a, in a, an unbelievably strange time in our history, right? I mean, yeah. unparalleled time. Nothing to compare it to. Um, but it's an, also a time where people are uh, home and searching for escape and ways to occupy themselves during this time, whether it be, you know, binging shows like that they haven't got around to. Like so many people I know are like, ah, I'm finally watching The Wire or, you know, um, yeah. oh, I broke down and I'm doing Justified or whatever. And, you know, same with uh, with music and same with books. Do you think that this coming out in this interesting time has has helped it in in the sense that People are looking for something, and at least you can say, hey, here's this. This should do you for a day or two or three, you know? Yeah, you know, I'll be honest. And at the start of the COVID-19 spread, in in addition to to, to all of my other thoughts and fears, I was not happy about the timing because my my book was coming out. Right. And we had all these events planned that we pulled. And bookstores are closed right now in lots of places. I thought it would kill the book. Uh, but it's on number five on the best other list and it sold a lot. So I think you're right. I think people are home. I think they're watching the office. I think they're looking for a distraction and they can download the book on Kindle. They get through audible. They can buy it. They could, they could buy it off Amazon and mail to them that I think it's proven to be a nice distraction. I've gotten so many tweets from people that are telling me it's their quarantine read. It's their getting through the quarantine. Yeah, and that's thrown me. If it's giving comfort to people, or 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 just a brief distraction, I'm very happy. Yeah, again, the book. And since we we mentioned it, let's let's go through it all here real quick. The book is called The Office: The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s. It's an oral history, and like Andy said, it's it's easy to get even in these strange times, right? So. If you're an Apple iPhone guy, you can have it on your phone in six seconds by going to the books app, searching Andy Green, and boom, it's right there. Get it for you know ten, eleven bucks, whatever. You can go to Amazon. Amazon has a bunch of choices. You can get it for their app or wherever you read Kindles on your Kindle on your phone, whatever. Also, you can get it delivered. You can get the hardcover version of the book delivered. And like Andy said, if you're uh, an audiobook guy. Um, you can do Audible as well. So wherever you buy books, um, but I think probably the two best places is the Apple app books or Amazon as well. Um, Andy, I'll let you go in a second because we're almost on a half hour already. But I wanted to tell you something that surprised me a little bit. I went to say like, oh, I wonder what other shows Andy's wrote about. And I went to your page and found out that you write mostly about music, it seems like. Um, yeah, I'm a music writer. Yeah, um, which you know, guy works for Rolling Stone. Yeah, okay, I should have assumed you're mostly a music writer, but Rolling Stone is politics, TV, movies. You know, it's all that anyway. Sure. So, but um, okay, so a couple things I hit you with music wise, real quick. One, what do you think of the new Pearl Jam record? Of the new what? The new Pearl Jam? Yeah, I think it's great. I've been waiting for so long for a new yeah. Pearl Jam record. It's the longest break that they've yeah, ever had. Years. Mm-hmm. And I was delighted to see that it's both experimental on some songs and more classic Pearl Jam on some others. I love it. I mean, I love that band so much. I, I, I think they can do no wrong. I love even the obscure albums. I like Ride Act and 
and binaural. Uh, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy, so I'm glad to hear that. Seems like the critics have really loved it in general. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think that you have a song like Quick Escape, which really feels like a Vitology song. Then you have something like, yeah. you know, Dance of the Clairvoyance, which feels like, well, who knows what it feels like. The only thing I've been able to say is it kind of reminds me of You Are on Riot Act, where it's just kind of on that album, but not necessarily like everything around it. Um, yeah. And then I, mm-hmm. 7 O'Clock, Whoever Said, Whoever Said really feels like a great Pearl Jam live song. Um, yeah, and that's the bummer of this whole thing, that yeah, the tour no didn't happen yet, I that I was going to see them at the Garden and the Apollo Theater. I was so amped up you know, to see this tour. Yeah, I had three shows, be, three shows postponed when it happened. I had three in the next 14 yeah. days, you know, because all know, three of mine were at the beginning of the tour. Because the recent tours, it's been at stadiums, and I hate stadium concerts. Yeah. You get the, it's, it's, they're so far away, and, yep. you, and you can't see shit. So back in the arenas was going to yeah. be so awesome, but hopefully in a few months yeah. say, or a year. Yeah. I haven't seen an arena Pearl Jam show since 2016, so I was – Definitely looking forward to that as well, even though I'd been to a few of the stadium shows in 2018 on the home and away tour thing. But I was interested to get your opinion on that. Okay, last thing, and I'll let you go on this. Um, And I'll let you throw out whatever plugs you want and whatever else. But we have sort of in the sports world watched the demise of Sports Illustrated. Um, You know, it went from weekly, important. I would literally run to my mailbox every Wednesday knew it would be there to read it to bi-weekly to now monthly to being sold a few times to being letting their best writers go they just disaster okay maven whoever owns it now disaster you work for a magazine what about the challenges of magazine in the 21st century and what about rolling stone how you feel you guys are positioned um and what you do and how it's evolving here as we move into 2020 yeah. and beyond, yeah. I think if you go beyond, if you if you go beyond just even the issues of like ownership, that Sports Illustrated is so tied, obviously, to sports, which is a very fast-moving world where every day there's new news and everything. There's so many websites that cover it. Um, that by the time they print it and they mail it out, it's a little dated, and that's a tough challenge. We're uh, Rolling Stone with politics and movies and TV and culture and so many things we cover, I think we're better equipped to sort of weather the storm. And we're lucky to be owned by, by like Penske media corporation, which really believes in us and has made a lot of investments and they're behind us. So we've been very fortunate and we're still and and we're monthly now, but we're going very strong. We're very, we're, we are very lucky. Right. And it was bi-weekly anyway. So the month, you know, the jump to go, Monthly isn't as drastic as it was for sports. You know, to go from two to one isn't as drastic as four to one. At least that I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I just think yeah. It's yeah. Just so much of it is in is in how visionary your corporate bosses are, and sure. we are lucky that we have ones that are visionary. And I think Rolling Stone. And I thought this about SI. I thought when I first saw Sports Illustrated on the iPad, I thought, "Holy shit, they figured it out. This is amazing. It looks amazing. People are gonna." Love this. Died off. Rolling Stone's similar. It looks great on the iPad. There's good mix of, but it hasn't died off. You guys, it seemed like you've maintained that part of it a little bit more. And I personally, that's how I consume the magazine is on the iPad. So uh, oh, most, well, most magazines I read, I do that way anyway because I just fell in love with that early on. 
Um, right. All right. Give me five albums for the quarantine. We already got Gigaton on the list, so you can give me five others, and then you can plug whatever you want. As far as far, we'll lay out the book one more time. Actually, let's do that first. That's Let me fine, lay out the fine. book one more time. Uh, the book is called again the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s uh the office by andy green amazon and apple ibooks i think are the best places to get it you can order the hard uh cover from amazon or you can get the ebook and audible as well all right give me a few albums and then anything else you want to plug and then i promise i'll let you go okay that's fine uh i'll go with some classic albums Let's go with David Bowie's Station to Station. That, to me, is perfectly, and I listen to it a million times. Uh, Let's go Bob Dylan's Street Legal. It's a a favorite of mine. It's a bit obscure, but I I really cherish that one. Uh, Let's go with The Who and The Who by Numbers, which I also think is very underappreciated. I'd better appreciate that. I think Surfer Rosa by... by the Pixies is a perfect album. It's what it's my top five for sure. Uh, and Peter Gabriel three with the no, with the with the melting face on the cover is another favorite of mine. Did you watch the Americans? No, but I've heard that they used a bunch of his songs. Oh my, really cool. There has never been a greater marriage than the Americans and Peter Gabriel. Like they, oh, yeah. they just the. Um, uh, what's that song called um, about rain? Help me out. You're a big Gabriel guy. That's called Red Rain. Not that one. Another rain one. Give me another rain one by him. Um, I got oh, it on a playlist yeah. here. Let me find it. Anyway, they they use that song so brilliantly in this like unbelievably emotional scene. Um, you wouldn't mm-hmm. like. You almost wouldn't believe. You would have thought it was written for the show like you would almost think the the producers are like hey give me that give me a song for this scene and he came up with it oh here it is wow um here comes the flood i was thinking rain oh here comes the flood Flood. oh yeah yeah, that is such a great song oh and it's first album unbelievably used uh did you have a song you were most looking forward to either at the garden or at the apollo which i'm pissed you had tickets to the apollo you lucky dog but um, yeah, sorry. Did you have a song or two that uh, was on your your list? I like when they do Luke and straight into Not for You. That is great. I yeah. love that transition. That's always one of my favorite moments in a Pearl Jam concert. Great dog name too. I always thought Luke and if I would ever name a dog. Yeah, name, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I am O for eighty three with all those yesterdays. So one of these damn days, uh, I will hear all those yesterdays. All right, anything else you, you know, want to plug? I was okay, well, go ahead. I was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia when they played Bugs. Okay, for, yeah, I was the there. First time. Yep, I was there. At, at oh wow, that Halloween, was, yeah, with Halloween yeah. '09, yeah, the Devo. So that was a real miracle moment. Yeah, yeah, it's right behind me. Was the owner of the Flyers was standing right behind me, um, kind of oh, like yeah. in like we were like on the last row, and he was like in the first row of the box, like right behind us. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, um, that was a great show, long show. And th- the night yeah, before was great, too. Like Sweet Lou. Yeah. Sweet Lou, yep, yep. And Out of My Mind. Yeah, um, then the Devo cover. The Devo cover, Whip Devo. It. Yeah. That was like one of the best shows of my entire life. Yeah, they even dressed up like Devo. Anything else? Yeah. I could. If we get into down this road, <laughs> you'll be looking at your clock and saying, like, this guy asked for 20 okay. minutes. It's 4 o'clock. What the fuck? That's so fine, anything else you want to plug? No, I have no plugs, but thank you. I had lots of fun doing this. Yeah, this was really fun. I, I feel like I, 
I, I was holding us back a little bit in the beginning, but I feel like we hit our stride, so I'm sorry about that. But um, yeah, this, this was awesome. Let's do it again sometime. I'm going to keep you on my DMs and um, hit you up another time. Sure. We can talk more music or whatever. Best of luck with the book okay, again. I, I, I'd be down. Yeah. Okay, it, thank you so much. I want to thank Adnan Burke and Andy Green for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters there. Email the sportscasters at gmail.com. And if you could give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I hear that's important. Uh, Greetings from Allentown. Our friend Peter Winston. You can find Peter on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. And of course, he's also my partner in the the, uh, Adams Division podcast. And on that podcast, we have a new episode, uh, which is available on Peter's feed or on the Place to Be Nation feed. For more information about Place to Be Nation, it's at Place to Be Nation on Twitter. Also, my friend uh, Justin Rosero has his own thing he's doing now, and I've been plugging that the last few weeks, and I want to keep plugging that. It's called the North-South Connection, brought to you by JT Rosero and Chad Campbell. It's the new home for Wrestling Warzone, No Holds Barred, The Extreme Three-Way Dance, Jeff Learns Wrestling, and more. Information on social media, at JT the Pod Guy on Twitter, or North-South Connection on Facebook. NorthSouthConnection.podbean.com or any podcatcher app to listen in. And also, don't forget my friend Adrian Dater. He's at A Dater on Twitter. His site, Colorado Hockey Now, is at COL Hockey Now. All right, with all that said, it's on to one last thing. And to be honest, I don't have much today. Uh, but it is WrestleMania season. And one thing uh, that has been really popular. Uh, during the coronavirus is all of these silly things that people do on Facebook. Quizzes and information and things like that. And I don't do them, but I did rip one off of Facebook to kind of have fun with in honor of WrestleMania for one last thing today. And it's a wrestling fill in the blanks. And uh, we're going to go through that now. All right. First thing, favorite wrestler. Uh, No doubt about that one. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat has been my favorite wrestler since I started watching wrestling. And he's still my favorite wrestler today. Paula and I love those arm drags of the dragon. Uh, We love to see those. Uh, He's my favorite wrestler. Uh, Favorite tag team, the Hart Foundation. Uh, I ranked them number one on the Place to Be Nation. Greatest tag team wrestlings of all time. uh, Way back when. Love the Hart Foundation. Their matches are great. They were good as heels. They're good as faces. Heart Foundation, easy call there. I also did consider the British Bulldogs, who I love very much. Favorite WrestleMania, this is a no-brainer of all no-brainers. Uh, WrestleMania three. Uh, best entrance music, Hulk Hogan, Real American. No doubt about that one either. Uh, underrated wrestler. 
Um, let me think. Who's underrated? Uh, maybe Ricky Steamboat's underrated. How about that? Uh, best commentary team, Gorilla and Jesse. Uh, I also enjoy Gorilla and Bobby and Vince and Jesse, but Gorilla and Jesse uh, are my favorite. Best interview, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, best manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. The Weasel Breath, nobody did it better. And best finisher. I thought about the DDT, but I went with the heart attack. It's my favorite. I used to love when the anvil would lift up the hitman, bounce the ropes, clothesline, great tag team finisher. So that's just a little fun with some wrestling stuff in honor of WrestleMania 36, which is happening this weekend. Um, I haven't watched WrestleMania since 31. Good chance I'll never watch another one again, but... Paul and I have been binge watching WrestleMania as we started at 1 and we're going to try to go all the way to 15. Uh, that's been pretty fun. Stay safe out there. Easter's coming up. We're going to get through this coronavirus bullshit soon. And uh, we'll be out there watching sporting events and going to concerts. Next week, it's one last thing. I'm going to break down Gigaton. Yeah.